Good morning. It is uh, a blessing to be here in Seminary Chapel, as long as well as my wife is here. This is her first time uh, to Seminary Chapel. When uh, I was a student at Bob Jones, she was an undergrad, so we never sat together in Seminary Chapel. This is the first time, sweetheart, in 40-some-odd years. But anyway, uh, good to see you today. I was coming over. I met one of our new students, Daniel, correct, Daniel? And uh, he was telling me he was coming to the chapel, and I was... Uh, I was like a student that's cramming for an exam. I was cramming my notes as I was looking, walking down the, uh, the breezeway, and I asked him where he was from. We had never met, and, he, and uh, I asked him, I said, well, how'd you get to Bob Jones? And he said, well, I Googled, was it a conservative seminary or college? Conservative Christian institution. I'm glad we made the list, and uh, so glad that you're here and that you're studying I was thinking this morning of my gratitude as I was preparing this message uh, for uh, my professor when I was a student here, Dr. Stuart Custer. I had him in the summer of, of 1978, and <clears throat> that was back in the day when people actually went to summer school, and summer school here was one month, and the class was a three-hour class. And so I had Dr. Custer first session, which was June, and we did, it was a Methods of Bible Exposition, and uh, we had three-hour class, and uh, I had to turn in uh, every week three expository sermons, Monday, Wednesday, and on Friday. Second semester of summer school, I took uh, not only Methods of Exposition two. But I also had the book of the Revelation, so from 9 to noon was Methods of Exposition, and 1 to 4 was the book of the Revelation. I had Dr. Custer for both classes, and he was notorious for never giving you a test. You just had to write sermons. So I had to write three Methods of Exposition sermons uh, that, that, that month of July per week, and in the book of Revelation, I had to write two sermons a week. So I was writing one sermon a day for, uh, for five, five a week for four straight weeks. And I'm so thankful that I experienced that suffering and misery over the summer <laughs> because it prepared me to be the president of Bob Jones University. And so I, I got the note on Friday that I had chapel this week. And so I've been, uh, this has been a Stuart Custer week preparing for this message. So 1 Timothy chapter 2 uh, we're going to look at verses 1 through 8 this morning. Paul writes, he says, I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, and intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in godliness and honesty, in all godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified or to be witnessed in due time. Whereunto, that is based on that witness, I'm ordained a preacher and an apostle. I speak the truth in Christ and lie not, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and verity. I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. It's really quite obvious as you read the passage of Scripture that prayer is a theme and that Paul is setting forth the priority of prayer in the church 
because he says, I exhort therefore that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made by all men. So the question that I would like to try to answer uh, this morning is, is why is prayer the priority of the church as we look at this passage of Scripture? And I think that you'll find that the answer is really quite surprising, but it makes total sense. So I'd like us to look at this passage in an inductive manner this morning and walk through it and then try to answer that simple question, why is prayer the priority of the church? Paul begins and he ends this passage with the same challenge. They're like bookends on a bookshelf. He begins and he says, I exhort therefore that first of all supplications, prayers be made for all men. Then notice he closes the passage and he says, I will therefore that men pray everywhere. So he starts in earnest, I exhort, and he ends by expressing his strongest desires, I will. In other words, he puts it in a very strong and forceful manner that prayer is to be of the highest priority and importance in the church. Let me say it this way. If the church doesn't pray, then it's out of order. If the church doesn't pray, it will never function correctly. If the church doesn't pray, then the atmosphere of the church will not be right. Paul also starts and ends this passage of scripture not only with the exhortation to pray, but he also starts and ends it with the word therefore. Look at what he says. He says in verse 1, I exhort therefore. Verse 8, I will therefore. And he, the opening, therefore, is looking back to the beginning of the letter where Paul makes a charge to Timothy in the first chapter. Notice what he says in chapter 1, verse 3. He says, I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine. And then fast forward to verse 18. He closes by saying, this charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy. So basically what Paul is doing is he's charging Timothy to set the church in order. That's the basic charge that he gives him. However, this is something that is way beyond what Timothy could do in and of himself. In other words, the church has to pray for Timothy and has to pray because this is not something simply a man can do. And I think you understand this, but you need to hear it over and over, that you can get the best education, you can be put in the best job in the ministry and fall flat on your face without the blessing and the power and the presence of God. You can't make it without prayer. Prayer sustains us in the ministry. We rise and we fall on our knees. And then notice the closing, therefore, in verse 8. He says, I will, therefore, that men pray everywhere. So he looks back to the way he started the passage, and he concludes with what he began with, making this an emphasis, the priority of prayer in the church. So obviously, the church must prioritize praying. May I ask a question? Does your church prioritize Praying. Do you feel like your church makes this of the most important element of the church? 
before I came as a student to Bob Jones University, I worked in the summer of 1978 as an intern at my home church in Denver, Colorado, the South Sheridan Baptist Church, and the pastor was Dr. Ed Nelson. I learned from Dr. Nelson the importance of prayer. It was, it was the breath of his life. We always prayed everywhere we would go. I never, never before in my life had I ever gotten in a car with somebody and say, let's pray. But I did with Dr. Nelson everywhere we went. We visited the hospitals. It was like a prayer meeting. We'd go in, read the Bible, pray. We'd move on. But what I remember the most were the Wednesday morning prayer meetings that started at 5.30 a.m. and ended at 8.30. I went the first time just to see if anybody would show up. I was so surprised how many men came to that early morning prayer meeting. Not everybody could stay the whole time, but I had never been in a prayer meeting for three hours. And I remember going to church on Sunday and my expectation level was off the charts because we had been praying for the Lord's blessing and we came to church expecting something to happen. Paul sets prayer as the priority of the church, but why? What's the reason behind it? Well, let's dig a little bit deeper because here Paul expands this priority. And he, and he first of all, he mentions some of the elements of prayer. He says in verse 1 and 2, supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings. These are all basic words for prayer. Prayer, the word for prayer itself is basically our approaching God. Supplication and intercessions are the way or the things we ask for, whether we're asking for personal needs or the needs of others. And of course, thanksgiving is, is, the, um, is the atmosphere of prayer. It's the salt and pepper on your meat. It's the buffalo sauce on your chicken. It gives you the atmosphere, the spirit. When we pray, prayer is a prayer of incredible thanksgiving to God who is the great giver. And then notice he mentions the subjects of our prayer. We're to pray for all men, for kings, and for the, all that are in authority. So actually, we were praying for all people. It's a wide open prayer. But in specific, he says we should pray for leadership. Why? Well, <clears throat> The importance of, of the authority in our life is, is almost you can't measure it. Anybody in your life who has influence in your life is of the most importance to your life. Whether it's a professor or whether it's a governor or whether it's a president or whether it's anybody in leadership, we should pray for them because without them, we really can't go anywhere. Nobody lives independent. We all live in structures. We all live in frameworks. We all live under authority. And so we're to pray for those that are in leadership. And then notice he mentions the effect of prayer in our own lives personally. And I'm going to paraphrase what he says here. We read here, in verse 2, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. I've just paraphrased it, and it said, in order that we may conduct ourselves in a well-ordered, peaceful, and quiet way, both inwardly and outwardly, that reflects a spiritual life of piety and dignity. That's, 
what happens when we pray. By the way, what does that tell us? It tells us of the powerful effects on our life when we pray. Prayerful people are always godly people. Always. You can't pray and stay unholy. You can't do it. Oh, you may do it for show in a church service, but not in private. It's hard enough to pray in private. It's not easy. It's a struggle. Every one of us struggles. And yet when you meet godly people, really godly people, you have met people that undeniably are prayerful people. The effects on our life uh, as we learn to pray, if you can go to a prayer meeting, go to a prayer meeting. Why? Because it affects you. It has an impact on your life. The very fact that few people go to prayer meeting shows us how difficult it is. It's one thing to get people to hear preaching. It's another thing to get people to go and pray. I was an evangelist for 29 years, and, and of course, we always wanted people to come to the meetings. And we would do anything we could within reason, of course, to encourage people to come to our services. But if I had a prayer meeting, why, we would get the faithful three or four or five to show up. And rare was it, in, in all of our ministry, the only time I ever remember a prayer meeting where more people came to the prayer meeting than to the revival services was back in 1991 when the... Uh, the Persian Gulf War, uh, Operation Desert Storm, broke out. And I was preaching in Southern California in the city of Victorville, and there were members of that church who were stationed at Luke Air Force Base, and the wives and the children were in the church, and the husbands were flying the first jets to fly in over Baghdad and drop bombs. And the name of the jets were called the Wild Weasels. And so the pastor called for a prayer meeting because the bombing was starting that night as we were in church. And I, and I came to the service that night and the house was packed. I said, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. I've never been to an all-church church prayer meeting with all, or all the church showed up. And that was one of the greatest meetings I've ever been in in my life. There were four young men that surrendered to the ministry that came out of that meeting and three of those young men and another man went and planted a church in another city in California. And what God did in that prayer meeting, what, what God did in, that, did in the services was, was an answer, direct answer to the powerful prayers of the people. We can't ever underestimate the effect of prayer in our life. And then notice he mentions the conditions for answered prayer. We drop down to verse 8 when he says men all... Are, are to pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Holy hands refers to our actions. Uh, wrath and doubting refers to our attitude. In the Old Testament, the priests were required by law to cleanse their hands before they went into the service in the temple. David writes in Psalm 26, verse 6, I wash my hands in innocence, and go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all of your wondrous deeds. We see throughout all the Old Testament the necessity of the washing, of the cleansing of our hands as, as a 
is a type or as a message to us today that as we enter into the presence of God, we need to enter into it with confession and cleansing. As Jesus said to Peter when Jesus was washing the feet of the disciples, and Peter said, no, yeah, I don't want you to wash my feet. He said, well, if I don't wash your feet, then, then, then you're not a part of me. He said, well, then wash my whole body. And he came back. He said, no. He said, I don't need to wash your whole body. I need to keep your feet clean. We have to keep our hands clean. We have to keep our feet clean. And he's speaking of the spiritual confession of sin in our own life. And then without wrath and doubting is referring to our attitude. The word wrath there is the word for anger. The word for doubting is the idea of constant argumentation. James tells us in James 3 and verse 14 that where there is bitterness and strife and envying in your hearts, this is not wisdom from above. Where there's resentment and rivalry, this is not from God. So as we come to God, we're coming to God to yield to him, to yield our rights to him, to yield our will to him, to yield our life to him, to say, God, you have every right to bring into my life whatever you want to bring into my life. And Lord, if you want to bring pain into my life, if you want to bring blessing into my life, if you want to bring burden into my life, what is prayer? Prayer is not getting my will done in heaven, it's getting God's will done on earth. And so we come into this place of prayer. And so <clears throat> the importance of keeping things right in both in what I'm doing and my relationship with others, keeping short accounts of sin, this is what prayer does for you. But we still haven't answered the question. Why the priority of prayer? Well, let me put it this way. When prayer is not a priority in the church, then something is distinctly missing. And it's not that hard to detect. And only prayer can bring this back. What is it? Let's go back and see the ultimate reason for this prayer. As we look at verse 3, he says where to pray, and then he says for the reason. Here's the reason. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. The word good there is the Greek word kalos. And if you've studied the Greek and good, there's kalos and agathos. Agathos is, if I could use the illustration, is reference to a good violin. Good violin, cheap violin. The word kalos is in reference to a good violinist. You can have the best violin in the world. You can have a Stradivarius, but if you've never played the violin, you're not going to make it sound very good. The word kalos here is referring to something that is beautiful, something that is praiseworthy. It's, it's when we hear a beautiful uh, voice singing and, and we respond naturally to it. This is speaking of God, for this is good and acceptable. The word acceptable is that which is pleasurable. So he's saying something here. That praying, praying people is both beautiful and pleasurable to God because it touches at the very core of the nature of God, who he is, his character, his work, his purpose, 
And what is that? It is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior. He is a deliverer. He is a Savior. Moses said in Exodus 15, after he crossed the Red Sea, the Lord has become my salvation. Habakkuk, in the end of his in the end of his uh, burden and writing, speaking of the burdens that God's people were facing, he said, "Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take salvation. I will take. I will take joy in the God of my salvation." It's what Jonah said when he was in the belly of the great fish, and before he got burped up, he cried out, "Salvation." is of the Lord. God in his nature is a savior. This is sensed when we are in his presence because when we are praying, what are we praying for God to do? We are praying for God to deliver us. We do not pray one time to get saved. Of course, we understand justification and what that means, but we are constantly praying for God to deliver us. God is a Savior, and therefore, since He's a Savior, then His will of desire is clearly expressed. Notice what He says in verse 4, who will have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God's desires for all men are to be saved and to come to the truth that is in Jesus. Now think about it. Paul is expressing God's own deepest emotions. What is beautiful and attractive to him? What is pleasurable to him? What God wishes for or deeply desires for all men. He is telling us what God feels. He is God, our Savior. And then notice what Paul does. He enunciates that salvation in the simplest and shortest form of the knowledge of the truth. He says, first of all, for there is one God. He testifies of the unity of God. He says there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. He confesses the position and the work of Jesus Christ as our mediator. He is telling us the knowledge of the truth, not of God in the sense of an idol worshiper, but who he is and what his work is. There can be no relationship between God and man without somebody bringing reconciliation between the two. There has to be a go-between, a mediator who has both the nature of God and the nature of man man who can reach this way and this way and bring us together. And then he precisely declares that this mediator was the atonement for our sin who gave himself a ransom for all. The word ransom has the idea of the means by which someone can be released or delivered. It's the price paid for a slave's freedom. And of course, here it is referring to the sacrifice the blood, the death, the the acceptance of God's judgment upon himself. Christ here is pictured as the exchange price on behalf of and in the place of all on the grounds of which freedom can be granted. And notice he said the logic here is very clear. If the ransom is adequate for all, 
then God must desire the salvation of all who will have all men to be saved who gave himself a ransom for all. Yet does everyone enjoy that freedom? No, of course not. The ransom is sufficient for all, but it is only efficient for those who believe. It has to be appropriated by faith. And of course, that was the calling that Paul said, the responsibility I've been given, the calling to spread this testimony. He said, I am appointed a preacher and an apostle. So let me go back to the original question. What is the ultimate reason for making prayer the priority of the church? At least as we read here what Paul says. Well, if God is our Savior and he desires all men to be saved, and if Jesus is our mediator and ransom for all, then it is through prayer that the spirit and the atmosphere of the church becomes intensely evangelistic. It is through prayer that the church, I mean, read it, go back and read it with, through that, those lenses. Go back and read about who we are to pray for, for all men, for kings, for all in the third. The word all is used five times in the passage. You'd have all men to be saved, come to the knowledge of, truth, of the truth. What's, what's the big picture? What's the overarching look as we look down? We are called to prayer. Why? Because God is our Savior. Because Jesus is our mediator. He is our ransom. He desires all men to be saved. Evangelism, the atmosphere of the church, becomes intensely evangelistic when there is prayer. Evangelism is an atmosphere. I don't hear many people say that today. We said it all the time when I began in the ministry back in 1980. Evangelism is a spirit. It is the spirit of burden. It is the spirit of urgency. It is the spirit of anticipation. It is the spirit of expectation. It is the spirit of joy. You can't see people getting saved without seeing people becoming joyful. And the church begins to express the feelings, the desires, and the heart of God. What brings God pleasure? What is beautiful to God? And that is the salvation for those for whom he died. And prayer should be the priority of the church. And what is the result? It is an atmosphere of evangelism that expresses the heart of God. And if, if you're in a church like that, here's what you experience. You come to church and you're just excited to be there and you actually think something's going to happen. I don't know when or where or what's going to happen. Something's going to happen. And you go to Sunday school class and people start talking about who they were witnessing to this week. And all of a sudden you come and there's a baptism. We have a baptism next week and four people are getting baptized. And I love to go to a baptism service where they actually cheer and clap that people have been saved. Do you know why? Because in heaven it's a whole lot rowdier. And the reason why prayer should be the priority of the church 
is because it reflect because it is the way in which we get into the heart of God, who is our Savior, who gave Himself for us, and it creates the spirit of evangelism in the church. My mother passed away a couple of years ago, and back, oh, I'm going to guess early 2011, 12, somewhere in that neighborhood. My mother had moved to Columbia, South Carolina, where I grew up, and I said to my mother one day, I said, Mama, you got to go to church. And she said, I'm not going to go to a Baptist church. I said, okay, Mom, I'll take you to another church. So I took her to First Presbyterian Church in downtown Columbia, South Carolina. And the pastor was Scottish. You know, Southern Presbyterians, if they can get a Scottish preacher, they foam at the mouth. And I sat in the church service that morning and the preacher got up and preached the gospel. And as soon as he was done, my mother turned to me. She said, why, that man will make you want to believe. And the whole service, you felt like there was this spirit and atmosphere of the gospel message as the preeminent thing and that people could come and believe. That's what prayer does in the atmosphere of a church. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for what you've done in our lives. We pray that you will forgive us of our lack of prayer and help us, Lord, help our churches to pray and to seek you and to pray for kings and for all men and for all that are in authority. And God, I pray that you'll do a great work in our day. Bring a revival of prayer again, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.